Well, as we look in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning, um, the whole idea of first fruits, which is the title of the message um, as well, reminded me of some things I thought I would share by way of introduction. Uh, one, of the, one of the earliest little poems that I can remember learning as a boy is, and you probably know this one too, uh, Red Sky at Night, Sailor's Delight. Red Sky at Morning, Sailor Take Warning. Yeah. And uh, just a little ditty, right? A little, a little poem uh, is one of the ways people use to try and predict the weather uh, back when, uh, you know, fishing and sailing was a big deal. Uh, not real reliable, but it's a, it's a nice poem. Uh, kind of like uh, estimating how long winter will last based on a groundhog's shadow. Um, but don't you always love seeing that first robin in the new year? Um, I do. Why? Because it points to the coming of spring, right? April showers bring, or maybe May showers. Um, and what do May flowers bring? Pilgrims. Do you get it? Sorry, a little dad joke for you. But uh, I always love watching the first tulips, the first daffodils poke up in the spring. Some of my favorite flowers. They signal what's coming, right? More and more colorful and beautiful things to come. Farmers, you know, watch the seedlings poke through the soil in anticipating of the crop that will come later. You can, you can hear the words sometimes that when, uh, when a song is, is begun, and just sometimes the first few notes, you remember the old game show, Name That Tune, right? Sometimes just from the first few notes of the introduction of your favorite song, and you know everything that's following, everything that's coming. You can hear the words. What about if I was to stand up here this morning and say, Dearly beloved, we are gathered here in the sight of God. You know it won't be too long until you hear these words. I now pronounce you husband and wife. The first words, the first sounds, the first seedlings, the first birds, they create anticipation in us. Because we know that something bigger and better is on its way. And that is certainly the case with a word that Paul uses in our text this morning. First fruits. It's the first time that he's used that word in this letter. In any of his letters. In fact, he uses it twice here in these, in these verses this morning. But it's a very familiar word to people who knew the Old Testament. And Paul uses it, I think, to teach us two important truths about the Lord Jesus, to describe two important acts of the Son of God, and to reveal two important results of those acts. So if you're taking notes, I'm, I'm going to give you what the main points are right up front, and then we'll look at them together. The first point is this, Jesus is a risen Savior. Jesus is a risen Savior. Because he rose from the dead, that's his act, 
we also will be resurrected from the dead. That's the result. Second main point. Jesus is a ruling sovereign. Because he rose from the dead and reigns, that's his act, every enemy will eventually be defeated all the way to the last one, death itself. And that's the result. So let's talk about these two ideas, these two beautiful truths about the Lord Jesus this morning, and hopefully to encourage you and strengthen your faith as we prepare for the Lord's table this morning. Jesus, the risen Savior, we see in verses 20 through 23. In verse 20, Paul affirms what by now should be very obvious to his readers. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So based on what Paul said previously in chapter 15, Christians are not to be pitied more than all men. Far from it. Why? Because the tomb is empty. And Jesus has shown himself to be alive to all of the apostles, to over 500 people at one time, as well as to Paul himself. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, according to Paul, is an established fact. And therefore, Paul's argument in these verses stands in very sharp contrast to all those what-if scenarios that he talked about in the previous verses. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Paul uses the, the in language, we, we call it the perfect tense, when he says, has been raised. It, it, he's making the critical point that Jesus' own resurrection from the dead is an ongoing reality. It's something that happened in the past, but it has an ongoing effect, an ongoing reality. Jesus is the risen Savior. He continues to be the risen Savior because he has conquered death and the grave once for all. This explains why it is that Jesus' resurrection plays such a big role in Paul's own theology and doctrine. The resurrection lies at the very heart of the gospel. Without the resurrection, we have no gospel. You all understand that, right? Without the resurrection, we have no hope of eternal life ourselves. And, and therefore, it's the foundation for our hope. Just as the Lord was raised from the dead, so too will we. The fact of the resurrection also serves as the guarantee of the future bodily resurrection of Christian believers. This is an interesting thing, and I don't, I don't think it's something that we, we think about very often, but there's a truth here that I don't want you to miss today, and it's captured <clears throat> in our text, but it's also, we're going to talk about it more in the verses to come in chapter 15. We, you and I, all humans, we were created to be embodied spirits. In other words, spirits in bodies. We were created to be that way and to be that way for all eternity. Sometimes we think about the fact that when we die, our spirits <clears throat> are separated from our bodies. And we kind of think, you know, the spirits kind of go to heaven, which of course they do. 
But we forget the importance of bodily resurrection. One day, our bodies are going to be made new again. They're going to be glorified. They're going to be made immortal, never able to die again. They're going to be reunited with our spirits, and we're going to remain that way for all eternity, just as the Lord Jesus is right now an embodied spirit in heaven. This is an important part of the gospel, and I don't want you to miss it. Um, <clears throat> the resurrection is an important truth. And, and it's going to, like I mentioned, we're going to talk about it later, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it today. But from verses 35 uh, to the end of the chapter, we're going to talk a little bit more about that in the weeks to come. And then we come in verse 20, we come back to this picture of first fruits. You know, I always find biblical themes fascinating, um, seeing how God develops them from their very small inception um, and, and develops them all through the pages of Scripture. And this is one of those kinds of themes. If you were paying attention to the opening movie, it started with um, Cain and Abel back in Genesis chapter 4. And one of the things that sometimes we don't think about in the difference between Cain's offering and Abel's offering is that it says Abel brought the firstborn of his lambs. Whereas Cain just collected some of his crop. It doesn't say that Cain, bought, Cain brought the first of his crop. But it says that Abel brought the first of his lambs. Thank you. <laughs> A little froggy today. How appropriate because it's raining. <clears throat> so <clears throat> that theme of first fruits, of, of giving our first to the Lord, starts with this offering of Abel all the way back in Genesis 4. And it seems like it, you know, it doesn't seem like, we don't even pick up on it, right? It's just like, okay, he brought his firstborn lamb. Well, that's kind of cool. But then, then we see it more and more through the pages of the Old Testament, you know. And we find that, you know, it's encoded into the law that the Israelites are supposed to bring their first fruits and, and everything's supposed to be dedicated to the Lord. And that's developed into what's called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of First Fruits. And every year there's a whole festival in Jerusalem for the Jews to bring all of their first fruits. And this is happening year after year after year for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And then one day, God gives his firstborn son. And the Bible here calls Jesus the firstfruits. It's a beautiful picture all through the Old Testament and now into the New Testament. And he's showing us, what Paul is showing us is that this idea of firstfruits, giving to the Lord the first, is <clears throat> it's coming to fruition. It's coming to culmination. It's coming to climax in the person of the Lord Jesus and in his resurrection specifically. So Jesus' resurrection <clears throat> is here the first of a much larger resurrection 
to follow. Many times in the New Testament, Jesus calls this a harvest that's coming. <clears throat> this, should give a, this should give us, as I mentioned in the call to worship, this should give us great optimism in our missionary and evangelistic efforts because the great multitude that stands before the throne, and we get a picture of this in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9, John describes this huge, vast multitude of all peoples and tribes and tongues and nations that cannot be counted. There are so many, they can't be counted. And they're before the throne. The harvest will be huge. And it started with our Savior, Jesus Christ, the first fruits. <clears throat> then he takes this idea and explores it a little further, verses 21 and 22. Paul talks about the two Adams as a key to understanding this idea. He does the same thing in Romans chapter 5. In fact, you're probably more familiar with that passage, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 down to 21. Uh, but here in verse 21, Paul begins to develop the two Adams theme for the Corinthian church. He says, For as by a man came death, in reference to Adam, which he'll clarify the next verse, by a man, Jesus, has, all, has come also the resurrection of the dead. Paul's reminding the Corinthians that death is the penalty for Adam's sin. We read about that in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. This curse comes to you and me. The reason why we're sinners, the reason why we need a Savior, is because death came by a man. It was passed on to all of his descendants. So the reversal of the curse, if death is the curse, then the reversal of the curse, life, resurrection, must also come through a man. And it's going to come through the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our, our resurrection, our redemption, our salvation depends upon the incarnation. Jesus had to become a man to take our place, to become our representative, just as Adam was our representative. Jesus undoes the consequences of sin brought down on our race by Adam. He summarizes that in verse 22. For as in Adam, all die. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. We're all going to die because of Adam's rebellion. All those raised by the second Adam, Jesus, will be made alive. Here's how one commentator put it. Charles Hodge wrote this, quote, We are in Adam because he was our head and representative, because we partake of his nature. And we are in Christ, because he is our head and representative, and because we partake of his nature through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 23. He now speaks of the first fruits of the harvest as those who belong to Christ. This is an important clarification because verse 22, it seems to say, all shall be made alive, right? That would seem to teach universalism. Everybody gets to heaven. Everybody's saved. Not so quick. Verse 23, the first fruits of the harvest are those who belong to Christ. You see it? 
but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. The harvest begins with Jesus' own bodily resurrection, but the harvest does not come in all at once. In fact, although the full harvest of souls is guaranteed by the empty tomb, the full harvest does not come in until the end of the age when Jesus returns to judge the world, to raise the dead, to make all things new. This word here, in order, is a military term that Paul uses. He often uses military terms. This is one of them. It refers to a detachment of soldiers. So each group or each detachment participates in the harvest at its proper order, at its proper time. The first detachment is the Lord Jesus himself, the first fruits of the harvest. The second detachment is composed of those who belong to Christ at his coming. That's a reference to Jesus' second advent. We celebrate his first advent, his first coming at Christmas, right? We celebrate his second coming, his second advent, through even the celebration of the Lord's Supper, right? Which we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Paul sees Christ's resurrection and the final harvest as kind of two big bookends in human history. On the one end, the starting point, is Jesus' bodily resurrection. And on the other end, we have the bodily resurrection of believers at the end of the age. That's the harvest. So first of all, we see Jesus, the risen Savior. That's an important truth because through Jesus' resurrection, we all will be raised as well. That's the first important truth. Let's move on to the second truth now in verses 24 to 28 and see Jesus as the ruling sovereign. We just had a little picture of this, didn't we, this weekend. I won't, I won't ask how many, well, you say, well, <clears throat> how many of you got up at 5 or 6 a.m. on, uh, was it Friday, to watch the coronation of King Charles? Where's all the royal people in here? Nobody. All right, neither did I. <laughs> and I'm interested. <laughs> but uh, we saw all the pomp, didn't we? Uh, we haven't seen a, a coronation like that in Britain for 70 years, right? Queen Elizabeth ruled a long, long time. So her sign now, who's been waiting for this for a long, 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 long time, um, just went through all that pomp and circumstance. And I don't know if you've ever had a chance to, to visit London. Probably um, several of you have. But uh, at Buckingham Palace, right next door to Buckingham Palace, there's the, the stables where they keep all the, the horses and all the carriages. And <clears throat> the first time that I saw the gold coach that they keep in there just for, you know, this kind of thing, um, I was blown away to see this, this thing overlaid in gold. There's so few things you see overlaid in gold, you know. Uh, this, back in the times of the Old Testament, it seemed like everything, temple, and it's all kinds of gold overlay. But, um, but it's striking. It's remarkable. It's, it's, it's shocking. It's awesome. And, and, uh, and that gold coach was, was rolled out again 
uh, for the coronation of King Charles uh, over the weekend. But all the pomp and circumstance and all the music and all the decoration, all the, the costuming and all the, the liturgy and the vows and everything that's done, the, the crowning and the anointing and all the, all the pomp and circumstance, we look at that and we say, that's kind of cool. You know, the British do that about as well as anybody. But friends, the coronation and the sovereign that we serve blows all the others away because he is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And so let's think about Jesus as the ruling sovereign in these verses. The ruling sovereignty of Jesus Christ could not have happened without his resurrection from the dead. And I think that's one of the points, the main points that Paul's trying to make here. Because of his resurrection, and then because of his ascension back to the right hand of God, he has acted in a second way, not only rising from the dead, but now ruling. Verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Now, I don't want to get down in the weeds too much. You can read about this more if you like, but some people see this verse as proving that there's not a millennial kingdom. The thousand years that we believe comes between the tribulation and the great white throne judgment. Uh, because some see that, um, that there's no distance here when Paul talks about his return and then the end. It just says he comes back and then it's the end. So when the dead are raised, then it's the end. And so there's no room in there for anything else. However, we must always compare Scripture with Scripture, right? This is one of the ways that we interpret the Bible. This is how we understand it. We don't just take verses out of isolation and build big doctrines on them. We look at all of the scriptural teaching. And when we, believe, when we look at Revelation chapter 20, and we find that there it appears that it teaches a literal 1,000-year kingdom on the earth, we must assume Paul's not trying to give us a thorough lesson on eschatology, on the, the doctrine of last things. Rather, what is Paul trying to do here? He's showing us that Jesus coming, his return, comes before the end of the age. His point here is not to give us a detailed timeline of all the things to come, but to show the relationship between Christ's resurrection and his ruling over all things, which happens progressively, according to verse 25. Look at verse 25. For he, Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. There's a command here. There's an imperative in verse 25. It's hard to miss. Jesus must reign in heaven until that time that his kingdom has conquered all his enemies. And the fact that the last enemy to be destroyed is death is a wonderful encouragement to you and I because when Jesus finally conquers death, now there's a sense in which he's already conquered death, right? Because he rose. He personally conquered death. 
But there is a fulfillment of that. He was the first fruits of that. There will come a day when all of our dead bodies that are laying in the ground, right, decomposing, all of those dead bodies are also going to be raised and made new. And at that moment, death itself will be dead. No coming back. And uh, that's a beautiful encouragement, I think, for us. For death to be undone, resurrection is required. This final defeat of the final enemy leads us to the climax, verses 27 and 28. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, I know these couple of verses here, I felt it as we were reading it together out loud. This, is, this can become a little bit of a, uh, you know, you kind of get tongue-tied, you know, reading through these you know, repeated words and everything. But let's, let's sort it out. God has put all things in subjection under his feet. You notice that's in quotes, right? But when it says, again, in quotes, all things are put in subjection. So Paul's talking about something that's been written, right? He's quoting from something. And if you have a study Bible, uh, you probably see in your notes there or in your side that he's referring back to Psalms. We'll talk about that in just a second. When it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. So here's the idea. Jesus ascended to heaven. He's at the right hand of God. He is ruling right now in heaven. He has been ever since he ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is little by little destroying all of his enemies. And one day, all of his enemies will be destroyed. The last one, death, right? Who is doing all of that subjecting, putting his enemies under his feet? You know, when the kings would sit on the throne, they, they would have a footstool. And the idea is that the king would have his feet up on that footstool, and the enemies are put under his feet. It's like he's stepping on them. In, in the Old Testament form, it's like when, when someone was conquered, when one kingdom conquered another kingdom, oftentimes the king would put his foot on the neck of the king that they had beaten. It was a symbolic gesture. It was saying, you are now under my rule, under my control. And that's what's happening. All things are being put under Jesus' feet. He is in charge. He is ruling. But the one who's doing that for Jesus is who? The Father. Do you see it? And so Paul's saying here that the one who has put these things under his feet is accepted. In other words, the Father is not going to join everything else under the foot of Jesus. Does that make sense? He's the only one that's not going to be subjected to the Son. <clears throat> Paul goes on. When all things are subjected to him, except the Father, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. Does that make sense? That God, the Father, may be all in all. 
<clears throat> there's a lot of things we could talk about here. Deep doctrine that's argued and contested. We're not going to get into all that this morning, okay? If you have questions, come and talk to me. I'd be glad to talk to you more about any of this in detail. There's something here called, some people talk about the eternal subordination of the Son. In other words, was Jesus always subordinated, subjected to the Father? Or are the Father and the Son equal, as the Bible seems to teach, right? And I would tell you, yes, they are equal, okay? So I don't believe that the Son is eternally subordinate to the Father. I believe that the Son is functionally subordinate. As the Son of Man, he is subordinate to the Father. But they're equal as God, okay? So if you want to get into that more, I'll give you whatever time you want. But we're going to move on. The opening words of 27 refer to the Father, as I mentioned, who is said to put all things under the feet of the Son. And this combines the words, this quote here, combines the words of a couple of psalms. One is Psalm 8 and verse 6, uh, where it says, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. The other verse is Psalm 110, verse 1, where David is writing, and he says, The Lord, speaking of God the Father, says to my Lord, David's referring to the Messiah there, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So those two verses Paul brings together to describe what Jesus is doing right now in heaven as we're waiting for him to return. It also fulfills a beautiful prophetic vision from the book of Daniel. And so I want to point that out to you too. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Let me just read it and you'll catch the idea right away. Daniel has this vision in chapter 7, verse 13. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. It's describing the future Lord Jesus. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And what we find is that that beautiful vision from the prophet Daniel is one day going to be fulfilled when the Father puts all things under the feet of the Son, including the last enemy, death, which will happen at the final resurrection of all of our bodies um, at the end of at the end of the age, and then what happens? The Lord will be giving that kingdom to his Father, that the Father might be glorified. So because of his bodily resurrection, Jesus Christ 
has been given dominion, power, authority over all things except over the Father. According to verse 28, the climax of human history is secured when Jesus Christ willingly subjects himself to the Father so that God's lordship over all of creation is complete. The dominion over the earth. Think about this. Remember when Adam and Eve were created. God said, go and rule the earth. Have dominion over everything. Well, that hasn't turned out so well, has it? But at this point in history, the dominion over the earth that the first Adam failed to accomplish will be perfectly completed by the second Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wrote about this same idea when he wrote to the church at Philippi. You'll recognize these verses, but think about them in light of what we've just looked at in 1 Corinthians. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Listen to this. God, Father, has highly exalted him, Jesus Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. That's another way of saying they're subjected to him. They're under his feet. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Speaking of death, the realm of the dead. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, is their Lord, in charge of them, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. But then do you remember how Paul finishes that section of verses? Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the ultimate goal of history, where Jesus will subdue all authorities, rule everything perfectly, present that to his Father, and God will receive the glory, finally, that he deserves. The climax of our human history. It's very theological, isn't it? It's very deep. It's very last things. We're thinking about the future here. But it's beautiful. And Paul gives us a glimpse in the middle of this chapter on resurrection and what all it means. He gives us a glimpse of the big picture and what Jesus' resurrection means. What it means for us that we will be raised. The full harvest will come in and it's a big one. So take courage. Take heart. And then, of course, Christ's resurrection allows him to sit at the right hand of the Father and over time to subject every authority under his feet until he returns all the kingdoms of the world to the subjection of God the Father and all the glory goes to him. It's a a beautiful picture. It's a big picture. It's a big theological picture. But it's all possible only because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So don't forget that. I'll ask the praise team to come back to the front for our final songs. I'll ask the leadership team to come prepare for the Lord's table. As these people are moving, just a quick final thought.
even as we await that glorious day when our Lord returns. Paul reminds us, until that day when he returns, Jesus must reign over all things. Even now, the Lord Jesus is in control of all things. You look around and you go, what a mess. But even now, Jesus is directing the affairs of people and nations so that human history will one day come to its appointed destination. Just as he said, Paul told us in Romans, all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord Jesus. All things. And that's intentional. The appointed destination is the full and final salvation of God's people. And although we must wait for that day, because, because Jesus' first fruits, uh, because his resurrection is the first fruits of a great harvest, I think one application that we can take out of here today is that we must stay busy with the spreading of the gospel mission that's been given to us. Because there are souls that are part of the harvest that are yet to be won. And so until Jesus comes back, our job remains in place and in action and in motion. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever think, yeah, I've done my time with evangelism. Yeah, I tried that once. It didn't work out that well. Oh, no, friends. This is our mission. A lot of you that are going to jobs uh, on Monday morning, uh, you're going to show up. You're not going to think, oh, I've done that before. You know, I, I've done that work before. You know, I don't need to do it anymore. You're going to show up. It's your duty. It's your responsibility. Friends, in the same way and in a much greater way, this mission of reaching the harvest that Jesus started through his resurrection is your duty, is my duty. And we've got to work at it and keep working at it harder and harder and harder until he returns, until he returns. So let's take that admonition to heart and let's keep being faithful. Maybe there needs to be a rush after the service to sign up for that evangelism class because some of us are a little scared about talking about the gospel. Some of us don't know exactly how we would go about it and there's help for you. So get that help, and let's all be faithful.